This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. Hello and welcome to Before the Peace. I'm your host, Jenna Moreland, and sitting next to me is the third place finisher in his first ever jiu-jitsu competition, and also the co-host and producer of the show, Trey Lapashinsky. It was on the B side of the tournament, but thank you, Jenna. I appreciate it. You hit the podium. That's what matters. And I didn't break through it, and that's a good thing. This episode, we interviewed the chief of West Moberly First Nations, Roland Wilson. He has been the chief of West Mob for 22 years, and he is one of the leading advocates for caribou recovery in Northeast BC. He sits on several boards and councils and has been actively involved in court cases pertaining to Indigenous and Treaty 8 rights. We actually asked Chief Wilson a question during the podcast, uh, what was his proudest moment as chief? And after the interview, he texted me with a different answer than he gave. So I'm going to read that out now and he said i am the most proudest of the caribou recovery maternity pen we have 19 healthy caribou cows in the pen this year in total we have taken that herd from 16 animals to over 100 since we started this is our ninth year operating the maternity pen and now it is considered the most successful pen in the world which is pretty amazing and that pretty much sets us up for the podcast <laughs> yeah, seriously and we we talk about a lot of current things going on with the First Nation as well as the history and that's where we tried to focus. We had a, a over a 40 minute conversation pertaining to court cases but with those court cases some of them are within the past couple of years we're also looking back at the history and is explaining why the First Nation has gone through the motions of these specific court cases and looking back at some of the history into the First Nation as a whole. Troyer Ventures, thank you so much for allowing us to do this wonderful podcast and talk to wonderful and interesting people like Roland Wilson. Yeah, so let's get right into it. Swerp my coffee while we're doing this? Oh, yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> um, okay. It, it's really hard to not start with so. I'm going to write the word so down and um, so I don't say them. <laughs> okay. Initially, it was known as the Hudson Hope Band before a split in 1977, forming West Moberly and Halfway River. Has there been any evidence of when the Hudson Hope Band was originally formed? Uh, the two nations, we were one nation, but we lived apart from each other. And so there was always kind of a community that lived at Moberly Lake. There's okay. evidence that we've been there for over 400 years. Wow. Okay. Um, at Moberly Lake. So, yeah. Uh, but in and around the area, there's evidence going back 6,000 years at uh, Gething Creek, areas like that. Um but we, our family ties with Halfway are huge. Like, we're interconnected with Halfway. We're interconnected with all the Dinosaur nations. You know, there's intermarriages and cousins and aunties and uncles through, through the whole territory. But when the Hudson's Hope Band, it kind of came alive when the fur traders moved in, right? And they started talking um, and trading back and forth. Uh, Hudson's Hope was a gathering spot for the Dunnysaw people, like Fort St. John was for Blueberry and Doig. Oh, okay. And, and uh, the other Dunnysaw nations were 
gather there and they would gather in Hudson's Hope. And, so they would gather in Hudson Hope and that's where they would do their trading? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Pick up girlfriends, trade horses. And, okay. <laughs> and so Denny's a Cree as well? The Cree were uh, around. Um, it was primarily Dunyza. The Cree were, there was a long history of a, of a war. That's actually how the Peace River got its name. The Cree and the Dunyza battled up and down the river, back and forth, and years before before our time, generations before us, uh, they got together and made a, a treaty, a peace treaty. And they named, the correct pronunci- uh, pronunci- <laughs> pronunciation of the river I can't. I can't remember exactly what I've been told. It was called Unchaga, but I've been also told that that's wrong. So the Peace River was um, the first treaty that happened <laughs> in the territory between the Cree and the Beaver, and we just started to kind of live together. Okay, and so you joined as interim council after the previous council was removed in 1999, and you became chief in 2000. Mm-hmm. What happened between 1977 and 2000? Like, how did how did it how did the governance work? I guess with the band, or how like we've, we've always kind of been a family based um, community, and the Dunnies are people are are they kind of structure themselves that way. Family based. We were small groups that moved around through the territory. Yeah. Um, so we have kind of headmen of the of the community and, and of the families. Okay. So head, head, head of the family. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. not just head men, but I mean, uh, women were pretty prominent too. Right. Yeah. But the, the, they had head people that represented the families and that's kind of how we we're structured right now. We took it to the kind of the next level where we have family counselors that are representatives of their family, but they sit together as a council to represent the nation as a whole. Okay. On that, and then they so they it. did that, and then just the, it, nothing was official, I guess. Well, that was. That's just the way that it was run. Well, and I guess traditional sense that is yeah. the official way of, of it yeah. was people. Everybody recognized uh, for West Mobley, uh It was Head Mandoki was the was the main person of the community, right? And every okay. every family group, they would all come together, and Head Mandoki would be the one that. They would appoint to talk to people and stuff. So like kind of so. like the chief then. Yeah, headman chief, yeah. same thing. Yeah, title. Okay. Headman chief. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and all the nations kind of operated that way. And in '77, the, the the reason why we split was because um, there's always been a community at Mobley Lake, and the funding uh, through the government went to halfway, and then, but because that's where the office was was at halfway, and then. Some would trickle down to Mobley, so they wanted, because there was people living there, we needed to get infrastructure in place and and get fresh water, clean water and stuff like yeah. that. We had to get our own funding services. And in order to do that, we had to physically split. It wasn't like there was a big fight or anything. It okay. was just a, a function of operating the nation. Yeah. And then we structured ourselves. Uh, under. I, I'm not actually clear on how how it operated. I um John Doki was the chief there. He was, it was the, John Doki was um, kind of the first chief of West Mobley. Uh, George Desley was chief after him. Carrie Lynn Greatbanks was uh, chief. Um, she was only chief for uh, a, a, not not even a year. 
she stepped down and I was asked to put my name in for chief. So we've only really had four chiefs kind of under the official banner of chiefdomness. <laughs> that makes any sense? Yes, because you were made you were made chief like short shortly after joining council, right? Yeah, yeah I was yeah. on council for a year. I was a family uh, family rep, family counselor for for the my family, the Miller family. And uh, when Carrie Lynn stepped down, um, I was asked by another family to put my name in, and I. After a long talk with my family and, and stuff, they, we decided that we would give it a shot and see what happens. And, and now it's been 20 years. Been, yeah. <laughs> it's been 22 years. I guess. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, 22 years. Yeah, I guess. I still think that I'm in 2020 sometimes. Uh, and the band has grown since you have became chief. Uh, what are some of the big accomplishments? Oh, geez. Like some of the main ones that you really think about, like... Holy cow. Um, we've never failed an audit. Oh, <laughs> that that's was, good. As a, uh, to me, I think that, you know, it may not. Our auditor says he, he's been, he's worked with other nations around the country, and he's worked with nations that have never had an approved audit. You know, they failed every year or something like that. So I've always, our council and our community is always kind of, I think I, we pride ourselves in that fact that we've. Dot all your I's and cross all your T's. But, you know, we we operate in a manner that we're accountable to the nation. So we do a ratification, like we do um, four band general meetings. Most of the communities around here have them. Uh, we bring in an auditor in uh, one, one AGM, like the main meeting. And uh, it's an independent auditor. And he reports to the community uh, and talks about it. We open the books up. And oh, okay. So everyone knows there's no funny business going on and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. There's a good transparency and accountability kind of level Absolutely. There, so. um, yeah, uh, that. Uh, um, our, the, the mere fact that our community has, has grown. When, when I was there, we had issues. When I first came there, we had... Uh, um, no housing. We were on a housing freeze, and our housing—I um, say I'm a lot too. <laughs> our housing was was—I uh, can't remember what the actual issue was, but we were frozen. We couldn't get pie for any new housing, and we had families doubled up, tripled up, in, in small houses. Oh, okay. Was this before the treaty land entitlement? Oh yeah. So is that a part of it? Like, how did that process work out in in helping West Morberly moving forward well, where the, it is now? The uh, uh, TLE process tree land entitlement claim hasn't actually settled yet so we're in that and the idea of that is back when they were identifying the reserves the communities like uh, um, Hudson's Hope we were Hudson, the Hudson's Hope band so they sent out an Indian agent and he went or he was supposed to go around and count up all the little Indians and then allocate the amount of land that was appointed for that process which is I think is 128 acres Per, per person, or 160 acres per family of five, but they missed a whole pile of people. They only he didn't go around anywhere. He just went to a certain spot, and whoever was there, he counted and said, "That's it," and went back to Ottawa or wherever it was that he came from. So we submitted a claim um, saying we missed a whole pile of people, and we identified the people we thought they missed, and then they came and looked at our list, and we had this back and forth saying, "Well, this was." 
this person was never there and we we'd have to prove yeah he was this you know that she was here because this is the relationship and stuff like that we did this whole big genealogy and had to account for every member and then we had to go through birth certificates and death certificates and so that part of it is kind of a reconciliatory measure to bring us up to being whole for the lack of and so for the actual, so you said that's still on an ongoing basis, like there's still, it's still a thing right now? Well, we're, we're just, hopefully, we're just going to be wrapping it up here pretty mm-hmm. quick. Uh, the, there's five, four nations, and no, five nations in the TLE process. And we've been, West Wobie's been in it for 20, 20 years. You know, it's one of the longest negotiations wow. that it has happened. But so once that gets done uh, we have land allotments that have been identified for us land for reserve land land for um, uh, fee simple land that we can buy and stuff like that but isn't that land already your like isn't that already West Moberly's land it's just the government process is that basically what it is basically yeah Um, under the treaty reserve land uh, under the federal treaty the reserve land is uh, supposed to be 100% um, uh, 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 resources to the nation but now there's been uh, um, the province is involved now and they want their share of the thing so there's a negotiation where there, it's 50-50 split between the resources that are on the land and there, there's always this argument about what is in the treaty it's the depth of a plow and Canada or BC says well the depth of the plow is 6 inches and we our argument was no you only get the depth of the plow. We get everything else, right? Because um, we were here first. So there was that back and forth. We've kind of made the agreement where we'll share uh, the resources on it. So that part of that is that we could develop um, economics for the for the nationship and and grow the community and and do the infrastructure instead of instead of waiting for the government money to come in. We can develop our own revenue streams and stuff like that. So essentially the the length of time that, it, that it's taken for the land entitlement is essentially making sure that it's fair but also the government wants a piece of the pie. Yeah. Yeah, there it's a very convoluted <laughs> sounds like it. Yeah. When, back when the treaty was made it was a federal government that made treaty with with the nations and the provinces weren't involved in that. The government federal government of Canada was a representative of all of, of all the governments. So when we signed treaty with them, BC wasn't in, in BC. BC wasn't at the table, and they've said over and over, "We don't have a treaty with you. Your treaty is with the federal government, but we own the land." But back when we were doing the treaty, BC wasn't involved. They didn't have the land, you know. Oh, that's so complicated. It's a very. So when did it like kind of shift? Like what? I don't. <laughs> uh... So years ago. Um, Canada made made this um, uh, did a thing called the Natural Resources Transfer Act, where they transferred all the resources of the province, the territories and the provinces, to the province, and that's how Alberta generates their revenues through oil and gas, mining, and all that stuff. That didn't happen in BC. They didn't do an N, it's called an NRTA. They didn't do an NRTA in, in in BC. BC just assumed control of it. And there's an argument about when did that happen and stuff like that. So there's a strong argument, getting into legalities and stuff like this, but there's a strong argument with the the British Columbia 
Treaty First Nations, Treaty 8, specifically Treaty 8, that we still hold title to the land, the resources, because they were never given to BC. BC just acquired them. You know, that's, there's no legal process that was in place for that. That's how come there's this all this um, the blueberry case and stuff like that's happened here. And same with the the boundaries too, right? Which was last year the the boundary was officially renamed. Um, what was it again? It was Western Boundary. Yeah, the, the Western Boundary. Yeah, was that part West, of it? The wasn't browser? renamed. It was uh, identified when the boundary was developed. Canada made the boundary, mm. and they their cartographers and mappers and people that went out in the land they used the height of land, which is typically the the watersheds where the waters flow. So it was the Arctic water watershed that formed the boundary for Treaty 8. And Canada developed that map in 1899 and, and produced it, and that's been the map in place ever since. Through the TLE process, because West Mobley, I guess we were out of line and we picked land that BC figured was, they determined was outside of the boundary, um, told us that the land that we selected for TLE was not treaty land. We couldn't do that. That ensued the Western Boundary case, uh, where we, our understanding, Canada's understanding, is the Western Boundary was the Arctic watershed. BC's version was not that, <laughs> and it, and to try and understand what BC's version was was, they didn't have a version. They just were adamant that it wasn't the what Arctic watershed, right? That's it was for them. It was the central range of the Rocky Mountains. But the problem with that is that the treaty says the top north-west corner of Treaty 8 aligns with the bottom left, uh, bottom southern-west tip of Treaty 11, which is way over, way over farther than what BC said. BC, the Rocky Mountains ended, and then BC just drew a line up, and that was their, that was their (laughs) boundary map. So there, there seems like there was, like, lack of transparency between the federal and provincial government is essentially what it is. It, it seems like that way, at, at least. Or just entitlement? They just yeah. want to take what they want to take? I don't know. It just seems like they just want to do what they want to do. <laughs> well, that, and that's, that's it, right? When you looked at the map, they, they produced their map, and, and in the treaty it does say the central range of the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. But what happens is, is along the Alberta-BC boundary, the central range of the Rocky Mountains is the height of land. But it changes once it comes, the Rocky Mountains split, splits off and comes into B.C. And then the, the boundary of B.C. and Alberta stays to the east. And the watershed actually changes there because there's water on the west side of the Rocky Mountains, which is the Finley River, the Parsnip, all that stuff that make the headwaters of the Peace River. And that flows into the Arctic watershed. And then the Fraser River, which, I mean, they're only a kilometer apart from each other flows into the Pacific. So that was the central range of the Rocky Mountains was the boundary, but when it came into BC, it actually changed and became the Arctic watershed. Okay. So that that's where it was. And it in the treaty, it actually, it didn't clarify that, didn't actually state that. It said it's the central range of the Rocky Mountains, but it lines up with the tip of, the lower tip of Treaty 11, which is way on the other side of the, well, the Rocky Mountains end some uh, halfway between here and Fort Nelson. 
And the Supreme Court ruled in the band's favor. Yes. Yeah. 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 And what was it, 120 plus years? I see that I wrote down here in the article from last year. Um, that's that 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 it, it took that long from the signing of the treaty for the provincial government to actually, and obviously you guys taking them to court on the matter as well. Well, it was never an issue until we actually applied for Westworld. We applied for for uh, land outside of the outside of BC's defined territory. When did you apply for that? Um, 2004 or something like that. Oh, okay. 2005. Oh, okay. Yeah, 2005. Uh, says it was brought up again in 2005 with Treaty 8 First Nations claiming that the boundary was along the Arctic Pacific. Yeah, and that was our... So BC said no, and we said, well, it is. And we went to Canada and asked Canada where it was. And Canada said, it's, it's where you think it is. And BC was just like, no, it's not there. And so then it wound up. It should have been a dis, it should have been a discussion between the federal government and BC, because the federal government made the boundary. The West, the the nations didn't make the boundary. The federal government made it. But then Canada, in its infancy, uh, uh, infinite wisdom, never defended it. It was up to the nations to defend it. You know, so, and basically all we had, all we did was we asked, we have people that live in that zone. And if it's not treaty territory, they're practicing treaty rights they don't have there. Mm. So we need to understand where the boundary is. And that's yeah. what the question was. Where is the boundary? And this, that's what ensued this big, big discussion. Because if it's not treaty eight, then we have to move our people okay. or tell our people, look, you're not, you don't have treaty rights over there. So you have to adjust what your habits and stuff with that. So a big curiosity for me, sorry, Jenna, I'm just taking over here. Go ahead. Um, (laughs) You do your thing. (laughs) You know, with, with some of the court cases within the Northeast bands uh, here in BC, it seems like all of your guys's, um, I guess you guys are, are all in the same route where you're, you're trying to do best for treaty eight, right? So for instance, with the, the boundary court, uh, court case, that's not just in favor of West Moberly. That's in favor of Treaty 8 as a whole. So Soto, Halfway River, Fort Nelson, kind of along the boundary. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that applies to everybody as mm-hmm. a treaty member. And it's, so it's not just the First Nations are just the people that have treaty. Every, like You have treaty right? because it's a relationship between the government and, and the nations. Right? So every, it's the, And that's a big kind of... Misconception? Well... A non-understanding, I guess. Or like okay. people just don't understand that. Yep. The treaty applies to everybody, you know. So, yeah. I've never really thought of it that way. Yeah, like it, the fr- there are rights that are given and and taken, and there's mm-hmm. a it's a cooperation, coexistence, sharing agreement between the two the two nations, the sovereign nations of the of the country, right? Canada and the nations, independent nations. So when the band heads into a court case specifically with their name of. Like for this one, it was West Moberly versus British Columbia. The other bands, are they kind of showing their support in one way? Like, how does that work out well, with uh, with you guys working as a it's partnership? It's a function of the court. They have to put a name to it. Mm-hmm. They can't put a whole pile of names to it just to make it simple. So they, because we brought the original issue forward, our name got put on it for it. So, um, but it was all of us. It affected all the Treaty Eight nations. So you were all working together. Yeah. Was yeah. this the first court case that you worked on? No. 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 Okay. <laughs> what, what was? <laughs> uh, holy. 
um, I think one of the first ones that happened was uh, uh, Vintage Oil. They applied for a license. Um, and it, actually, it was Soto's, uh, Soto First Nations case. Uh, they applied for a uh, oil license, uh, a, a lease inside of um, an area that Soto utilized. And they, it was a cumulative impact case. And Soto filed a, a judicial review. It concerned us as well, so we joined in with it. That was that was my first official involvement with with the court, and it, that kind of just snowballed into all this other stuff. <laughs> so, so going off of that with the cumulative impacts case last year with Blueberry First Nation, um, where does that stand for a band such as West Moberly moving forward? Does that have you know, it, it has implications across Treaty 8 and how the province is dealing with the bands. What are your thoughts on the ruling from last year and how you might benefit, West Moberly might benefit moving forward? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> so cumulative impacts, when, when I came on council in, in 1999, the nations, the Treaty 8 nations, the uh, then it was just six of us. Uh, or seven of us, McLeod Lake hadn't joined Treaty 8 yet. They were just in the process of doing their adherence uh, adhesion um, thing. And uh, there was a... (laughs) Before that, there was a big fight that happened with uh, Amical. Um, It wound up being a big... uh, uh, caused all kinds of problems. Amical was trying to drill on the Twin Sisters Mountains. Uh, There was roadblocks, all kinds of stuff happened. It went to court. Um, it's kind of set up a whole pile of processes. But out of that process, one of the main things that happened was the OGC was set up, the Oil and Gas Commission, so that there was a regulatory body that kind of governed how oil and gas development was supposed to happen. Um, and out of the Oil and Gas Commission, there were these things called the Memorandum of Understanding between the First Nations. And that set out how consultation was supposed to transpire through the, and the and consultation is kind of dictated by court cases. You win a court case, you have to change the rules and how you how um, you consult. You lose a court case and everything <laughs> gets changed again. You win a court case, so it's dictated basically by the courts. And at that time, the courts had determined that you had to consult with First Nations. You had to go in and and find out what if there was a project what the issues were and, and move forward. And that was through the MOU, That right? was through okay. the MOUs. The MOUs had a thing called set-asides, stuff that they couldn't deal with right at that moment, but they put it aside so they could deal with it later. And the cumulative impacts was a set-aside from 1999. And it's being set aside up until Blueberry's case. And the problem that transpired was the government refused to look at the amount of development that was transpiring on the lands, where as in context uh, the First Nations' ability to live a promised way of life. So Blueberry's case kind of yanked that Band-Aid off, and 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 the judge said this is this is out of hand. Like <laughs> there's too much development. Like we've got the caribou, the issue with the caribou. Um, uh, the Wilson Reservoir has got full of methyl mercury, like all these impacts and issues and stuff that are happening. And the First Nations have uh, the treaty rights to hunt, fish, trap, carry on a, 
a way of life as if they had never entered into the treaty. So part of the treaty promises that way of life. But with that treaty, um, there was, there's like an amend, amendments that are attached to it that were the verbal promises made by the treaty commissioners to get the treaties to Im- implement it. The promises that were made to get the First Nations to adhere, take treaty. And those promises have to be taken in context with the treaty. So the the treaty commissioner had made the promise that we would be uh, free to fish, hunt, and trap, carry on a traditional way of life after we signed the treaty as if we had never entered into the treaty. And the treaty would not lead to any forced interference. So you skip ahead till now, and Blueberry happens. And when you look at the development around Blueberry, they're completely 100% inundated. They can't do anything where they are. They have to leave. And historically, we would have... Our use of the land, uh, as nomadic groups moving around through the land, we would go to an area, and if there was lots of animals and good fishing and you know uh, food and berries and stuff, we would camp there for a while until we started to notice that those resources were getting diminished. And then we would move on. And that's part of the gatherings. We would all come together and, and have a talk, say, well, you know, we were over here, we were doing this, but the moose and the beaver are, are, are diminishing. We're going to leave, and we're going to go over here, and you guys go over there, and, you know, and they, they would tell us where they were came from. So we would kind of manage the land that way. But with the reserve setups, they put us on a reserve, and we can't do that anymore. So they have to manage. The government was supposed to be managing not just the resources that they're interested in, but also the resources that affected the First Nations. And they didn't do that. So there's no moose, there's no elk. Well, there's elk, but no caribou. You know, the fish around West Moby, the fish in the Willis Reservoir, like the Peace River, Willis and all that, they all have methylmercury. So there's that's a forced interference. Now, under the treaty, the government's allowed to infringe the treaty, but they have to justify it. There was a case called the Musqueam case. <laughs> and the Musqueam case was the government issued a, light, a permit to do something and it impinged on, uh, infringed on uh, a Musqueam member's ability to fish. And the, the court said the, the Canada has to justify the infringement. They can infringe, but they have to make a justification for it. And, and it has to apply. So it's it's called the, the the Sparrow decision, and they have to do a Sparrow test on it. And that's what our issue with Site C. Go back to Site C. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. That, and that's where it goes with Sites, which is yeah. an ongoing it's case. It's an ongoing right? thing. Yeah. They never, they never, Site C is, not, is an unjustifiable infringement. They don't need it. It's been proven. There's, like, there's no argument to it. The, the BCUC has said they could do something else. Like as in they don't, we don't need the power. We don't need the power. And if we do need the power, there's better ways of generating the power. Yeah. You know, so that, that's the unjustifiability of that piece. Um, so when you, when you look at the impacts, the blueberry case, and you actually take a, a, a 50,000 foot level look down on the land and say, well, where can somebody go and carry on a traditional way of life without any interference? They can't. You know, and they have they have to move out from where they are. And historically, they would have picked up camp and moved off somewhere else. But we can't do that now. The 
because there's literally actually get to the point where there's no place else to go, right? And the the another big part of the case too is the money coming in and being shared with the First Nation as well, right? Well, with all this happening, it seems now that between the province and Blueberry, Blueberry's going to have a little bit more control over, you know, what contracts are being accepted going into the First Nation or, or for development in general. Is that also helping them out to drive their, their economy and the local demand? That's a piece of it, yeah. 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 A so, small piece of it, I mean, I know the, a big part of it is the, the traditional happenings too as well, like you're saying. So there's... <laughs> it's they can't perform a traditional way of life anymore. So there has to be an, an offset to it. So the offset is to participate in the modern day economics, oil and gas, forestry, and stuff like that. Um, trapping is no longer a viable lifestyle anymore, right? It's more of a um, hobby type of thing. Nobody's earning a, not, you could still earn a living trapping, but it's not a, a viable thing. The economy has changed to resource extraction. So the impacts that are happening, there has to be a balance between the resources being extracted, the impacts that are happening, and what's left. And the, and the communities, just like forcing the whole reason why forcing John exists is because of oil patch on gas here. You know, if, if uh, well, you can look at what happened to Fort Nelson. You know, everything slowed down up there and everybody moved out of there. Fort Nelson is, hard, is almost a ghost town right now because they everybody was there because of the resources. But the First Nations are still there and they're still dealing with the mess that's up there and they're trying to clean it up. So a big part of the Blueberry case was is the identification and the realization that somebody's got to start cleaning this stuff up. And who has the biggest interest in, in seeing that happen? We should have a say in it because we're, it's happened to us, you know. A lot of the activity that's happened, we weren't brought into the activity. We were pushed off to the side. Um, you know, Blueberry, I talk a lot. I, sh- I, sh- I should be talking about Blueberry. It's, it's their place to talk. But it's known that Blueberry and Doig lived at, at the Montney uh, Reserve. And the government discovered that there was oil and gas there. And they moved them out of there and gave that land to uh, other people and allowed them to develop it. Why wasn't Blueberry and Doig allowed to, to do that? They pushed them off. Blueberry went, not Blueberry, but Doig went years without a community. They were dumped off at Peterson Landing and, and Crossing and, and were left there. You know, and that was the, the years ago. That was a big case settlement that happened with um, Blueberry and Doig. So you... When you look at that, the nations have never really been able to participate in, in the economy of what was what's going on around us. We've always been given scraps and stuff like that. And now we're in a position where we can, you know, we'll be a part of cleaning some of this mess up. And, and as we get moving on, uh, some of the nations have got into owning rigs and, you know, other things and with the win that Blueberry First Nation had, like, how is that going to affect you guys? Like, is or Treaty 8, I guess? It's a benefit for us. Yeah. You know, it's brought us all to the table with the government. So it's, uh, um, it, we have the same issue. 
like we all have the same issue. For us, it, uh, you know, around around Mobley and Halfway and and, and with Soto, and it, you know, we have mining, we have forestry, we have oil and gas, we have hydroelectric, and you know, wind was thrown on top of that, and all this other stuff just keeps piling up, you know. And at some point in time, somebody's got to say, well, what's what's left out there? Like where where can we go and what can we do? And, and part of this discussion that's happening now is trying to identify that. You know, models are being developed and thresholds are being put in place. And the identification, you know, they've developed so much that they've pushed the caribou to the point of extinction. You know, and then and the caribou agreement happened. You know, we were a part of that because we have a, an interest in seeing the caribou come back. But it got to that. It should never gotten to that point. The government of Canada, the government of British Columbia is supposed to manage and do their development and not cause that kind of a result out there, but they ignored it. And then the, the, we're at, we are where we are with the caribou now, you know, and everyone's like mad because things are changing. And stuff like so that. what are so your plans with the caribou? Trying to recover them, yeah. you know, trying to get a, trying to get a balance back. So the issue with the, that we're having with the moose that nobody can find moose anymore, we believe it's a direct result of the fact that we can't hunt caribou anymore because we rely more on moose now. Oh. You know, so the the balance is called a seasonal round. The courts and scientists have decided it's called a seasonal round. The moose, the caribou, the elk, the deer, they all breed and calve at different times of the year. So the seasonal round, we would hunt the moose when it was time to hunt the moose. They, we, we wouldn't hunt them when they were in their rut, the breeding cycle, and we wouldn't hunt them when they were calving. We would leave them alone. We'd never take the big bulls. we take the smaller, immature bulls, the big bulls with the breeding stock, and that gives you the healthy population, so you'd leave them alone. You'd gather your food during that time. That was in season. you pick your medicines at that time when they were in season. And then when the elk came in season, you'd hunt the elk, and you'd do those things, because other things would be in season at that time. And the caribou, same thing with the caribou. So that was the cycle that happened. But you take that caribou piece out, you have to adjust. And the adjustment was moose and elk. Elk are different than moose. Elk are, are herders, and you know they, 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 go, they live in big herds. Moose are solitary. So the impact, everybody wants everybody wants to shoot a moose because they're big. One moose can feed a family, right? So it's not just First Nations, it's hunters and everybody else like moose. With the decline, with the, the bans or Treaty 8 in general, uh, not being able to practice as much as the, the, the traditional activities, what does it look like now? Let's say specifically for West Moberly in 2022, what does it look like now for you guys wanting to practice your traditional way of life? It's, it's, diff, it's difficult. We have a, uh, um, we have to move farther and farther out in a way um, on it. Uh, we have to have a clear understanding that we're not hunting caribou anymore. We've, we stopped that, uh, you know, and, and uh, so we're noticing now that the moose populations, there's a, a struggle trying to find a moose anywhere, you know, so... When you start looking at the traditional lifestyle of the First Nations, historically, and where we are now, 
our diets are changing. There's health issues in in the communities. Diabetes is up, you know, uh, uh, heart problems, all that kind of stuff are increasing. And part of that is due to the fact that we don't have traditional life anymore. You know, we're supplementing our life, eating McDonald's. I mean, that's that's a comfort creature comforter. What do they call that? I come to town, you know, it's nice and handy for me to run into <laughs> A&W and grab a, a, grab a burger or something and go. But to, And our systems were set up different, you know, because the, the whole diet, you know, the 100-mile diet type of thing, the First Nations, that was their, they lived on that 100-mile diet. They ate what they could get and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, there's a question now whether the, the meat that we are getting, like the moose and the elk and stuff like that, are they healthy because of all the contaminants mm. that are on them? We know the fish isn't. You know, we have a choice between catching fish out of the Wilsons, the Peace River system, and getting methylmercury, or going over, um, uh, like the Sakanka, the Murray, the Wolverine, all those places that have mines. They have selenium, you know. So we have to balance our heavy metals. So the sorry, sorry, the Peace River, like yeah, it and why? What is that? Well, the Wilson Reservoir when it flooded, yeah, there's a, a it increased methylmercury, and 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 methylmercury is a heavy oh. metal. So all the fish, all the, I, I shouldn't say all the fish, um, the the lake trout, the dolly varden, the bull trout, rainbow trout, those are 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 salmon. Like a you can get a big bull trout. 20-pound bull trout. It's like a big spring salmon. And they're all contaminated now? They all have. <gasps> the big ones, what? the majority of them have methylmercury because of what's going on in the Wilson Reservoir. When they oh. flooded the Wilson Reservoir, it created, and they've, they, it's in the uh, fishing synopsis, uh, the regulations. There's a, uh, they make a, there's a warning to be careful not to eat too much fish out of the Wilson system oh. because of the methylmercury issue. So they obviously did assessments and analysis of the fish in the Yeah, in the and they, they've been stating that the mercury level should decrease. This was one of our big arguments with site C, too. The mercury level should decrease. But we ran a study uh, about six years ago, seven years ago, on the Crooked River, which is the south end of the Wilson Reservoir, and uh, we found that the mercury levels are just as high now as they've ever been. And what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means you can't, you shouldn't eat, pregnant women shouldn't eat fish. Uh, oh. uh, the amount, uh, two Hershey kisses of fish a month, you know, so in a, in a, a traditional lifestyle, like the, our family, my family, the Miller family had fish camps. We used to fish on the Crooked River and it actually came about because of Wilson, we were talking about sightseeing Wilson Reservoir and the mercury issues. For the last 60 years, we had a fish camp on the Crooked River where we would catch the dollies that were running up. There was a, the they were called shiners, um, small peamouth fish that would come up and the, the bull trout and the dolly varden would follow them up and eat them while they were spawning. So you'd catch great big bull trouts, like great 20-pound, 30-pound bull trouts out of the, out of the river and, and our we would have a camp and we'd catch a big fish we'd throw it on a stick and cook it over the fire we'd all eat a fish and you know we'd catch enough fish to fill our freezers and 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 
have meals. We were all sitting around uh, at, at one of these camps, and we started talking about the mercury issue. And the question came up, well, where do these fish come from? Well, the Crooked River is connected to the Wilson Reservoir, so doesn't that mean that the fish that we're, we've been eating since they flooded the Wilson Reservoir is full of, they, is full of mercury? How long have we been, like, are these fish contaminated? So we ran this study and we found out that, yeah, they are. They're highly contaminated. Oh, my gosh. And nobody has known this. Like, and that's not, that's not a First Nation issue. That's everybody's issue. Like, uh, like, what are some of the health issues that might happen because of that? Well, too much uh, methylmercury causes Miramata disease. Um, and that's, uh, you can Google that, and that's, uh, Miramata is a place in, in Japan. Uh, they had methylmercury introduced into the system there through pulp mill work and stuff like that. And it crazes, uh, causes nervous disorders, um, oh. grassy narrows, and uh, I think it's in Ontario. They have a pulp mill, a big issue with methylmercury over there. Uh, actually, the chief, I think, just one of the chiefs that I knew just passed away from complications due to methylmercury poisoning. On it, the whole the whole community is being infected by it, affected, not infected. But it it, it causes like there's no there was no studies done. And one of our issues is that. I live in Hudson's Hope, and we get the Hudson's Hope bulletin, the little news bulletin. And they, somebody, I think it was Health Canada or somebody, put a notice in there, that clause that's in the fishing regulations, about the warning of ingesting methylmercury from the fish out of the Wilson Reservoir. And because I live there, I got this, and I read this, and I thought, well, I've been chief. They didn't like, even tell you? We've never seen a notice like that. What? So I went back to the community. I said, have, have we ever seen this? Like, has anybody ever come and talked to us about this? We sent a note. and The response back from them is that we didn't know you guys ate fish. What? <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a, yeah, okay. Well, oh, my but, gosh. So we, then we got into it. The same Kind of the same thing happened with the caribou. We, we knew that there was an issue with the caribou because of the flooding of the Wilson Reservoir. We made an internal... Uh, kind of traditional law that we were not going to harvest the caribou until they came back. And we knew that the populations were fluctuating. We didn't realize that they were in the state that they were in until um, we found out about the burnt pine herd. And then we started understanding that the province was supposed to be recovering caribou. Uh, They have an agreement in place with Canada under the Species at Risk Act where they were going to uphold the terms of SARA and the caribou were identified as threatened. So we assumed that there was this planning going on to recover caribou, and we found out that no one is doing any planning on recovering caribou. And they were actually issuing licenses to operate and develop in critical caribou habitat. And that's what happened with burnt pine caribou herd. They issued a, they didn't issue a permit. The, the company went up there and did an illegal trespass right in the critical wintering habitat, and we found out about it, and we got involved, and uh, found out that um, the burnt pine caribou herd was down to nine animals. They were in critical. They were in a critical state, but nobody was. What What's the normal number? Like, what would be a good number? Well, there was thousands of them oh. before. Not just the burnt pine. <laughs> we're getting into getting into some deep discussions. <laughs> The conversation is flowing. Yeah. <laughs> the caribou used to be uh, everywhere. 
they were like there were thousands of them and historically there was a migration route that went along the rocky mountains foothills of the rocky mountains and there was always resident herds at like the mobile herd that's now the quincy's are herd you know they they were always caribou located they weren't called them back then but there was always resident caribou here and in this migration pattern they move in big herds and they would move north and south and we would historically we would hunt, follow them follow the migration pattern and we would hunt them and stuff like that when Wilson happened they fled the Wilson Reservoir that fragmented and made a northern population and a southern population and the southern population because of the development got broken into these isolated herds the Burnt Pine Herd the Glinzizah Herd Quintet Narrowway and then they got isolated even more from all the development around them and they just kept dwindling you know mm-hmm. caribou are very sensitive uh, they're used to having large amounts of caribou so when wolves and predators came there was they were their survival thing was lots of you could suffer an impact uh, moose and deer and uh, not moose uh, bear and, and wolves eating them because there was lots of them but when they got fragmented, there was no repopulation of them, and they just kept getting dwindling smaller and smaller. Mm. So Still, how do you fix the issue then? <laughs> like, how how is, like, I mean, obviously not hunting them, for one, but what else? Well, if we are interested in having caribou, we have to reduce the amount of impacts to them and, and kind of try and turn the the tide on on them so impacts are you know industrial development encroachment snowmobilers quarters hunters type of thing and we have to get them back to a state where they can free range again right now Mm. they can't they can't do that what they can free range but they free range in their own little places there's so much development around them and 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 what happens is, is we've encroached on their areas and they and they're kind of like us we have no place to go they have no place to go and what winds up happening is is they would go to the top of the mountains in these big groups and they would isolate up there and they would live off the the rock lichen and the terrestrial lichen on the ground and uh, wolves and predators couldn't it would take too much energy to get up there so they would be safe but now roads are being built into the high alpine you know, we're mount, uh, mining the logging and logging the mountaintops off. Wind farm development, they're all isolating the tops of mountains. So all these access points now converge on top of the mountains where the caribou think they're safe. A wolf walks by and sees mm. this trail, and you know, they run up there and say, oh, God, look at all these caribou. And they just have a big feast. And the caribou can't get away, you know, and the bear do that. You know, so the they don't have their places to go to to be safe anymore, and and I totally lost where we were going. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I I I'm I'm gonna pivot a little bit because I'm just kind of curious. Because when you became chief, your kids were quite young. Yeah. How like how was that with like the work life balance? Like that must have been hard. Well, with all the issues, like not only yourself but council in general, like you guys have put a lot of work in. 
Yeah, how does that work for not only yourself but the counselors as well? You know, you're you're managing the community. There's court cases. There's all these other ongoing issues. It just seems like a lot. I got my kids at home <laughs> that got their own issues. Yeah. <laughs> so I I grew up in a logging family. My dad was a bush foreman. My mom was a, a, a camp cook, and and I live that lifestyle. My dad was gone all the time, and as I was growing up, I told myself, I, you know, I'm not going to. I want to be the dad that is involved. He he wanted to be involved, but he was working, right? Mom was working and stuff like that. But then I find myself now doing exactly what happened, right? Working and, and doing stuff. So the family has definitely taken a, a toll on it. You know, I try to be there when I could. Uh, but um, I hope that it's understood that what we're doing is important. And mm-hmm. you know, each of the communities are, are doing the same struggle and and. Hopefully, what we're doing now is going to benefit them and the their future kids generations. And the future yeah, generations. Absolutely. That there will be something left, right? Well, and that was that's going to lead me into my next question: Is Indigenous advocacy seems to be at the forefront of society and um, in the mainstream as well? Like many factors, including TikTok. That's like a big one. I don't know if you know about TikTok. <laughs> I get TikTok stuff. I, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> I'm uh, trying but to be. What is your hope? I guess for the future generation. And I guess the leaders coming up. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I would hope that they are interested in, in and proud of who they are. You know, and part of that is being able to, to you know, speak about who you are in a, in a sense of pride. You know, there a lot of the communities are, are shame-based uh, because of what's happened. You know, uh, residential schools being pushed off to the side. You know, I grew up in a school. It was very, uh, uh, lots of different uh, cultures, uh, you know, uh, and, but the First Nations in my school were always kind of segmented off to the side, right? And everybody else kind of was allowed to, uh, was welcomed in, but the, the First Nations were kind of always pushed off to the side, you know, and that's that's kind of how we we operate kind of on the fringes, and and what's happening now is is kind of more of an inclusion of it. I grew up in a time like I I I remember having fights in school because somebody called me a you know a dirty little Indian type of thing, and, and uh, I wound up wrestling and stuff with that. <laughs> and it's like call me that if you want, but we're going to have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> but my mom grew up in a time when she couldn't walk down the streets without somebody with her, a non-native person with her. She wasn't allowed to go and have a beer with friends in a beer parlor, things like that. Like she always had to have some. It was kind of like a, the apartheid system, which in the apartheid system actually came from Canada. And like, Sorry, like how old are you? <laughs> 55. Okay, okay. So, like, your mom, like, that would have been... God, that's not even that long ago. But, yeah, like, not even... It it wasn't a good time to be (sighs) an Indian back then. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was... I grew up in a a time where I watched... I had family members that had gone to residential school and had literally had the Indian taken out of them. They came out not knowing who they were, where they were from, uh, they were taken away when they were young, didn't know their family, and then when they when they were done 
residential. They went right through the whole system. They were kicked out and sent back to a family that didn't know who they were, couldn't speak the language. You know, they were they were kind of misplaced. But then trying to incorporate ourselves into mainstream society, you know, the missing and murdered women, you mm-hmm. see that happening. Um, the children from residential schools that they're finding now, all that, all that stuff is coming out and we're hopefully able to start talking about it and getting that addressed and, and really start the healing process. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's going to be a painful process because a lot of people went through some very bad things, mm. you know, like, Canada went to war and, and and went to World War II to stop the atrocities that were happening over there. All in the while, they were kind of doing it here, you know. And and people here were trying to talk about it and were pushed off to the side, ostracized, and you know, told, you know, never mind about that, you know, suck it up, get over it. Well, we have generational. Um, issues now because of that you know that actually brings me to my last question (laughs) which is what does reconciliation mean to you that's a tough one i think it's uh, about trying to address the um wrongs that were done um the blueberry case is a kind of a reconciliator uh reconciliation of points of trying to fix the impacts of of development on that you know so there's different different kind of views of what what it means right to each individual of reconciliation is my view of what reconciliation is different from what bc's view of reconciliation is right and and that's um Saying you're sorry is not enough anymore. You actually have to put action to words and and do something to to change and to fix what has been happened, what's happened. You know, and that's through the Blueberry Court case. You, you're now seeing the the uh, uh, reclamation of the impacts and stuff like that, stuff that they haven't done. They were supposed to be doing it, but they never did it. And now it's now it's being addressed up front. For a residential school person, it's uh, you know, it's how do you how do you ask them what they believe reconciliation is after what they witnessed or what they went through? You know, and that's that's a tough one. There's <laughs> a piece of that too. Delving off of Jenna's last question, we're kind of bouncing around here, but um, just with the ease of information now in the social media age and the fact that, yeah, on TikTok, you can see a video and there's an Indigenous person telling you of words not to say in certain conversations. Is that a, a, a part of the reconciliation process as well as this ease of information, the fact that anyone could just go on their phone and find out potentially the truth if they want to? I think it's a part of it. You know, um, if it's done in the right way, you know, lots, lots of people take information and they construe it to fit what their motive is. So um, you have to look at the individual that's has has the has the need to be reconciled with and accept and acknowledge that, that that's an actual thing that they that has to happen. 
you know, and, and that's a part of, for years, residential school, nobody would talk about it. You know, the, even still, the Roman Catholic Church will not admit what they did. And it's, you know, now they're talking about the chief from Kamloops is going to go over there and have a meeting with them. And I don't know what that's going to accomplish, but, you know, for them to say they're sorry, that's one thing. How are they going to help fix the onslaught of problems, the issues that have come up with that, you know? Um, and more and more discoveries are being made, too. Like we had Williams Lake and then with High Prairie and just most recently, I forgot the exact name of the band off the top of my head, but I know it was near High Prairie. Well, when you look across Canada and look at how many residential schools there were across Canada, it was kind of like the internment camps when World War Two happened and they took all the... Asian people, like the Chinese people, and stuck them in these camps, and you know, just because they were of that ethnicity, ethnicity. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, I I should stop using big words. I guess. No, you got you got them. You You know, and like that—that's all kind of part and parcel to the whole thing. You know, I mentioned, kind of quickly mentioned that the apartheid system. That was actually developed here. They took, they came up here and looked at Canada and took the Indian Act and went down to South Africa and developed the apartheid system out of the Indian Act. Okay. Yeah. So that was it's crazy. And everyone's, like Canada was one of the first ones that said, hey, you guys got to stop what you're doing down there. That apartheid, that's horrible. Stop doing that. And, you know, and here, lo and behold, they came up here and got it from us. Well, not from us, got it from Canada. Wow. As we're winding down here, Roland, um, just going back on, on reconciliation, and, and you know, moving forward, what do you? I mean, there's a lot. This is another loaded question, but let's say locally, what needs to what needs to be done? What do you think? Do you think the? It sounds like the wheels are in motion, but what needs to be done moving forward? My, I think my big, I'm hoping my big thing is is creating awareness and understanding. You know, and a lot of people that are mad and upset about what's going on is because they haven't been, things haven't been explained to them, mm-hmm. you know, and that was the the caribou situation that happened with the caribou agreement, stuff like that. It's not our position to have to inform people of that agreement. That was Canada and BC's job and they didn't do it. And then it kind of defaulted to us and we stepped into a place where people were mad you had to defend what you were doing. Well, it wasn't so much that we had to defend. It was that we were being attacked. Yeah. It. And yeah, I guess we had to defend. But so to create the awareness, like people, I don't know how many, have either one of you read the treaty? No. Nope. Yeah. Right? But I don't know that it's important to read the treaty, but I would, like there's, the treaty is the basis of what we are talking about here with the First Nations, the Treaty 8 First Nations, and to understand what's going on and why all these confrontations and arguments and things that are happening, people, I think people should have to sign a declaration, like an understanding of, you know, we understand that there's a treaty in place here, we understand the rules and stuff like that. And I totally agree because there's certain issues coming out where, yes, we know parts of the treaty just based on, well, working in news, you know, I know parts of it, but I haven't actually sat down and and, and have looked at it. So I, I do agree that 
I think people should. You know, that is a big part of it moving forward, so they, they know what it's all about, right? Well, for years we have always, we've talked about it amongst ourselves here. Why are we learning about uh, about a little bighorn? Well, that's that's an American issue. Like Everybody knows what happened down there, but nobody talks about the issue. There's, who knows about what happened at Taylor Flats here? What happened at Taylor Flats? Oh. Oh, my, oh my gosh! Okay, we need to have you on again. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 at the we're going a little bit over here, but it's it's such an interesting conversation, it Roland. Is. Thank you, thank you so much, leave, and leave uh, you in suspense. Yeah, yeah, cliffhanger. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this, and I really hope that you'll do it again because I loved this conversation. I'm not sure. What we, we we talked about so many things. <laughs> you know, we went we all over the place. But you know what? Like, we actually followed everything that we had down. We Pretty we much, didn't yeah. do it in the order, but it kind of we <laughs> okay. flipped it and started talking about the court cases. So no, it went it went it went well. Thank you so much, Roland. Again, thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I was wasn't sure what to expect, but this was good. I like this. <laughs> Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at energeticcity.ca slash podcasts. If you have any guest or program idea, email beforethepeace at moosefm.ca. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.